Hey, everybody. Welcome to The 180 with Eric Lockley. I'm your host, Eric Lockley. We know that there are moments in life that define us and that set us on one path or plunge us down another. Join me as we dive into our guest's turning points. Let's laugh, heal, and be inspired together as we pull back the curtain on how our guests made The 180. Sometimes life gets hard when you're on your journey. Don't stop, keep going, you can turn it around. The 180, yes, it's a big change. The 180, your life won't be the same. The 180, you can do it. Say yes to your beautiful future. The 180, yeah. So I am so excited to welcome my guest, Tony Hillary, to The 180. In 2011, Tony Hillary founded the nonprofit organization Harlem Grown and is the executive director of the organization. Harlem Grown is a Harlem based youth development organization utilizing food justice as a vehicle for social transformation. Its programs include school gardens, one on one mentoring programs, operation of a hydroponic greenhouse, a summer camp, nutrition and cooking workshops, and a training program for parents in Harlem to learn about urban agriculture. They do a lot. I've had the opportunity to experience some of it. It's absolutely amazing and life changing. And most recently, given how the pandemic has completely changed life for the student population, Tony initiated partnerships. To donate meals to shelters around the city. Most recently, he expanded the organization's purview beyond food insecurity, aiming to tackle the challenge of students not having devices that they needed to log in for class. An appeal to his donors garnered a number of devices being donated and an additional surprise donation of 100 laptops from TD Bank. Another recent achievement is Tony has a children's book out called Harlem Grown How One Big Idea Transformed a Neighborhood. I am so thrilled and excited to have. Uh, Mr. Tony Hillary here with us today on the 180. Hey. <laughs> hey, man. Thanks for having me, man. Thank you so much. Great show. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you more about your journey. But first, we like to play some games. So I got a fun little game. It's game time on the 180. The name of the game is Veggie Plate. What you make? It's like a little version of Chopped. So, I don't know if you watch Chopped, but the idea is I'm just going to tell you、uh, fruit or vegetable and you tell me what dish you would make with it. Because hopefully, I mean, y- yeah, you cook. You definitely cook. I don't. <laughs> but with squash, what, what would you make? What's a dish you would make with squash?、Uh, sauteed. Yes. We, you saute it.、Um, vegetables are all good in their own, on their own. You really don't need to make individ- I mean, big dishes with them. Uh huh. That's something I learned through Harlem Grown that we'll get into as we、uh, proceed with the 180. <laughs> But squash is delicious on its own. A little olive oil, garlic, salt, and pepper. It's perfect. Sounds good. And okay, so pears. Pears and salads.、Ooh. We put pears in, in a lot of our leafy green salads. Yeah. Along with some nuts. And I mean, it's a good contrast. The, the tanginess of the leafy green, the sweetness of the pear. Perfect combination. Oh, that sounds good. I have not had, I think a while ago I tried it and I enjoyed it, but I have not done that in a while. Yeah, pears and a salad. Yeah. I, I need to get around to that. One of my favorite types of salad is like watermelon and,、oh. and feta cheese or watermelon. Like watermelon in a salad is really absolutely. good. Absolutely. Same, same kind of concept. Yeah, absolutely. Arugula and watermelon together. Oh, killer. 
Yes. Killer. What would you do with leaks? And I said leaks, and I don't even know what that looks like. What you said, <laughs> it's like, you can, I can learn about leeks right now. They're like onions, so we put them in different. We use them in salads. We use them in stews. We use them in almost everything. Yeah, any kind of soup or stew, we we use leeks in it. Mm-hmm. I feel like sweet potato. Th- this is the last one. Sweet potato. How would you prepare? Sweet potato. There's a lot of options with sweet potato. And there's nothing like a baked sweet potato with some some butter on it, vegan butter, ah. a standalone sweet potato. I'm very simple with our, with our food, and nothing is better than just food in its purest form. The actual vegetable or the fruit alone mm-hmm. is pretty delicious. You always don't have to include all these other ingredients. Sometimes the taste and the flavor gets lost in all of the other elements. I mean, sweet potatoes is a standalone by itself. My wife loves um, sweet potato tempura. Oh, wow. At the, uh, from the Japanese restaurants, they make a tempura yeah. with it. Oh, it's delicious. Nice. Well, I've, I've, I've already learned um, some ideas for some things that I need to cook up myself, including <laughs> buying some leeks and yeah. experimenting with leeks. I didn't realize. I know that you're a bit of a gamer. So what is a game that you feel like reflects your journey with food justice? Oh, my God. Uh, I would have to say Monopoly. The Monopoly game of life, the way you go around the board and you wind up wherever. Uh (laughs) And that's why this show is so apropos for that, because my old life and this life, Mm. you couldn't get further from the two. I mean, you couldn't get further from the two. Okay, well, let's let's get into that. Growing up, what was your relationship uh, to food like and how has that transformed? You know, as a black American, food is food, food choices, our diet is hereditary. It's kind of passed along by generation and generation. And we historically have a horrible relationship with food. It's fast, it's flavorful, it's salty, it's sweet. And as a result of that, we have some horrible health conditions that come from that. And that was me. So growing up, I was one of eight children. Wow. Yeah, I'm number five of eight. I was born in Wiesbaden. My dad was a Tuskegee Airman. Mom was a housewife, if you can imagine. Eight kids, yeah. Yeah, I lived an upper-middle-class life my whole life. I was lucky. I was very lucky. Made some horrible decisions in life as well, but we can get to that. (laughs) That's so interesting because I know in terms of my journey with food, I wrote a solo show called Asking for More about this 12-year-old boy who goes to a new school and discovers his whole family's eating unhealthy. They're eating fast food. They're eating things and you know covered in sodium, like too much sodium, all that stuff. And he tries to rally his community and save his community by going home and being like, "Mommy, I'm not eating Donalds." And she's like, "You got money for the fancy groceries? You have bus fare for us to travel?" Like, so what you're talking about the community and how historically, unfortunately. The aim has been like, we got to survive, so we got to eat whatever is accessible, like whatever is affordable. So changing that mentality or being able to provide access to more healthy options is is so, so important. So what initially piqued your interest in exploring food and access to foods as a sociopolitical justice issue? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> and that's a pretty funny answer. <laughs> this just kind of it was happenstance that it happened this way. Mm. Food was just food to me. It was just fast. It was convenient. It was, Mm. it it never dawned on me that food is as important as it is. It never 
cross my mind. It wasn't in my wheelhouse at the time. Mm-hmm. Like most people, I was in the pursuit of money. I was in that money hunt. Mm-hmm. And you're working, working, working. You, you eat on the go. You grab and go. You eat, you eat. You don't take care of yourself. And as a result, I gained a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. I was prescribed blood pressure medicine at 44 years old. And at 45, they added in some Lipitor for my high cholesterol. Uh-oh. Yeah. I was morbidly obese at the time. Wow. I'm five foot eight and I was weighing like 246 pounds. Mm. My knees were hurting. My ankles were hurting. I kept buying more clothes because my clothes wouldn't fit. So instead of losing weight, you just go buy more clothes, right? Right, right, right. That was the routine. I never gave food a second thought. Never, never dawned on me. That's why I was feeling that way or looking that way. It's just the way it was. Something, I mean, something must have changed. So what would you say was that moment for you where you said, I've got to change this, or you had a new lens on it. So if you don't mind, let me just give you a little um, context of this. Absolutely. I told you I was born one of eight and went to private school my whole life. Life was good. I was the first in my family to drop out of high school. So I was the black sheep of the family. Obviously, I was the first in my family not to go to college. Mm. But I had a great foundation of mom and dad, community, et cetera, et cetera. So I made some horrible decisions in life. Um, Full disclosure, I have 34 years sober. I'm clean and dry, 34 years. Congratulations. Thank you. But with that foundation I had from my upbringing, you can fail upward. Hmm. Failing upward is an option. So I started some businesses and I stumbled upon one that was very lucrative, made a ton of money. And just because our listeners probably won't know, tell us briefly about the job that you had before. Yeah, I started a one car limousine service and I had a niche market of Hollywood. So if you can think back 10 years ago, who was the biggest people in their arena being film, stage, or music, they were my client. I went from one car to 26 cars. I had 68 employees. I mean, I was making a ton of money. I moved my family from Queens, bought a beautiful co-op up in Riverdale, beautiful co-op on the Hudson. My children all went to private school. Life was great, money flowing in. And then the last national crisis was 2011. It hit me. The banks cut my line of credit. Mm. I couldn't get new vehicles. I started losing clients. And I was sitting at the same place Mm. I'm talking to you right now, and I was getting depressed. Now, depression is the the kiss of death for a recovering addict alcoholic. The personal pity party is the worst thing ever. Mm. That's how you fall off. So I kept reading about schools. I kept hearing about schools. And I could not wrap my head around what I'm reading about no books, no, no, you know, know this, know that. And I'm sitting here and just one day fighting, I guess, depression, I guess. I don't know what it was. It wasn't clinically depression, but I know how I felt. Right. I got on the subway and went to Harlem mm-hmm. and I got off the train at 135th and Lenox. And I'm walking up 135th Street and about 30 yards off the corner, here's a school and some children playing at recess. I said, oh, Eureka. I walked inside, said, I'm here to see the principal. She said, yes, sir. How could I help you? I said, well, I'm here to help. And she said, help with what? I never even thought it through. So I said, I'm here to teach parents the importance of education. Don't ask me why. That's what popped into my head. (laughs) 
So she introduced me to the parent coordinator. He and I had a cup of coffee. She's like, all right, go get them, Tiger. So now every day I have a job. So every morning I get up, my wife goes to work. I go to quote unquote work. I go to this school and I'm in front of the doors every day and I'm greeting these kids like some crazy cheerleader. Uh Hey kids, welcome back to school. But more importantly, I chatted the parents up on their way out. And about three weeks in, this young parent walked up to me and said, hey man, why you keep stressing this education? Shit, I ain't got one. <laughs> and I'm doing great. Mm. That definition of doing great is a project department, Section 8 welfare and food stamps. So mm. we always hear the term generational poverty and you hear all these terms. And how do you respond to that statement to another human being face to face like this? I don't even know her name. She didn't know my name. But how do you say, no, you're not doing great. You can do better. Right. So I did like most would do. And I quit. And I went home and I'm telling my wife about these wasted three weeks that I'll never get back. But as I'm describing this three weeks, in those same three weeks that this person felt comfortable enough to talk to me like that, the children in this school, all 378, in three weeks, you'd have thought I knew them from birth. Mm. When I walk in that building, it's like, Mr. Tony, they run and they hug you. <laughs> and I'm like, what the heck is this? Because yeah. I tell you, I have three kids myself. And when I come home, I'm a dick. I'm dad, right? My kids are <laughs> like, oh, man, dad's home. <laughs> They're like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But when you go to work, you're like Santa Claus on Christmas every day. Mm. And I'm like, wow. So I'm working with them. And I went and told the principal that, you know, I'm going to quit the parents. and I'm going to work with the kids in the lunchroom. And then I got a quick study on poverty. Mm. Um, When you go into these schools, these schools, there's no art. There was no music or gym. Wow. All of these kids go to school for their academics as well as breakfast, lunch. And if they're in after school, they have a snack, which could be their supper going home. And that's kind of what brought me on my little journey. So I'm working in the lunchroom every day for breakfast and lunch. And I'm that guy. I'm Mr. Tony. All the kids come around me. So (laughs) I started started recycling. The kids started recycling. And then lo and behold, the, the organization in the lunchroom went from chaos to like an orchestra in 30 days. It was the most amazing thing. And the principal said, hey man, what are you doing? Uh I'm like, nothing. I'm just (laughs) engaging the kids. (laughs) And remember now, I was a big guy. Mm. And I used to eat peanut butter and jelly every day because I didn't care for the school food. I used to eat the school peanut butter and jelly. Wow. So one day I'm deciding I don't want that. I'm going to go outside and get something to eat. So I'm walking and I counted over 50 fast food restaurants in a three block radius of that first school with 29 pharmacies in the same three blocks and then not one affordable food option. That's what made me really start thinking about it, right? So now you see the health outcomes. You see the, the connection from fast food. And you, you eat this stuff and you go right next door to a pharmacy and take this pill every day for the rest of your life. And you see this cycle. Mm. And you also see it through the children. And no fault of their own, this is what they're given right. because it's close and it's cheap. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what started it. And then... Right across the street from the school was an abandoned community garden and um, made some calls to the city. They told me it was indeed abandoned. They told me how to set up a garden committee. I did it. And then they came back and said, you got it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Wow. That is my 180. It wasn't the food. It was my life. It was business. It was my quest for more money.
there must have been a vision that you had to no <laughs> to no. see the garden. I'm like, how did you know? How'd you decide? You could not miss it. The uh-huh. garden is huge. Yeah. It must have been six buildings at one point back in the wow. 70s. All the distressed properties, mm-hmm. the city bulldozed and filled them in and made these community gardens. They're all across the five boroughs. Mm-hmm. And at the time, they were all under the parks department. So every morning, a, a park ranger would come open up, engage the community, close up. In the decades since, with fiscal crises all the time, the first department hit his park. So it's like the last person who had the key makes the rules. It's like their own little kingdom, right? Uh, yeah. And this particular one, there was a lot of illicit stuff going on. It was a junkyard. The kids in the community called it a haunted garden. They didn't even walk on that side of the street. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so when they got it for me, when I started going over there, me and my fat self, after breakfast, I would roll <laughs> over there and start pulling <laughs> out trash, go back and do my lunch, Mm. come back out and go back to the garden. Two days into that routine, when school let out, the kids came over and started helping me. So six weeks later, we had it all cleared out. And then once a little girl, she was in kindergarten, this kid, she's about this big, I'm holding up my pinky. She has glasses as big as mine and a little tiny face. Uh She looked at me and said, hey, Mr. Tony, why don't we plant something? And I said, okay. So we did some soil testing. The plant, uh, the soil was contaminated. Mm. So I called a landscape company. They came and dropped a truckload of organic soil. Went to Home Depot and bought some seedlings on the uh, clearance rack. And every class came out and planted something. Now, I just got to add, prior to that, the children's relationship to food in the school was very similar to mine. Mm. Mm-hmm. The schools do the best they can to provide a nutritionally balanced meal, but for pennies on the dollar. Right. So the kids wouldn't eat anything green. That would go right in the trash. They eat the starchy food and wash it down with sugary chocolate milk. That's the diet. So when you talk to children about food, these children in particular, they couldn't even identify simple vegetables. They can tell you a tomato and a carrot. Mm -hmm. Broccoli, 50-50. If it's on the stalk, forget it. They, they, They get stumped. So when we started planting it, the same kids who didn't identify and would ill anything green, when we started planting in April, in late May, early June, when the stuff started to leaf, you saw them nibbling on the leaves, talking about how delicious it was. Some of it wasn't even supposed to eat the leaf. You have to wait for the fruit, like a tomato plant. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was like a psychological thing. Yeah. And I saw this thing happen right in front of my face where the kids would say, this is delicious. And then the kids from the class next to them were saying, no, mine is. And they were sharing the leaves. And that was the beginning of Harlem Grown. So they were eating. It. But then the damnedest thing happened later in June, toward the end of school, I remember stuff started to really bloom, um, especially kale and chard, arugula. Mm-hmm. And we harvested, it was like 38 pounds of produce. And I packaged them up in these little tiny packages so I can give it to many kids as possible. Yeah. The next day, I couldn't wait to get to school. I'm all excited. So, hey, honey, how'd you like that? They say, I don't know. My mother threw it away. Oh, my gosh. Mom doesn't know what it is or how to prepare it. Wow. So this goes right back into what we're saying. Right, the cycle. Yeah. So that was the beginning. And then my personal journey at the same time, I saw the connection from when I'm teaching these children. So I'm a nut with my health. I go to my doctor all the time, twice a year, mm-hmm. and, and I get my blood work. Was that the case before, like when you were bigger and had the cholesterol? Yeah. yeah. You still regularly I, went to the doctor? I re- regularly went to the doctor. That's a message to go to the doctor, to remind people, go to the doctor. Message! 
Message. That's right. See your doctor. And the doctor's always upping my dosage of blood pressure, mm. upping my Lipitor, right? Just upping. Yeah. You know, do the usual thing. Oh, don't smoke. I don't smoke. Don't drink. I don't drink. Work out. I hate working out, but I walk a lot. Uh-huh. Um, and uh-huh. then your diet, right? And your diet. They always tell you your diet. So then as I'm doing this, I went vegetarian and I go to my doctor and I was watching my levels drop. Mm. First time in about three years, the levels actually dropped. So then I went vegan seven years ago and I lost 52 pounds Mm -hmm. and I also lost all medication. I just take a multivitamin now. I take a baby aspirin and and a multivitamin. (laughs) That is the key. And the solo show I created, I would say that food can either help you or harm you. It can be medicine or it can be poison. And when we recognize that relationship to it, it makes it so much simpler to say, what am I doing to my body? And you want to heal it. So you want to find the things that are medicine and know how to utilize them as opposed to, okay, well, whatever's convenient, because whatever's convenient can very easily be poison. Exactly. Exactly. And um, I've been saying this very loudly for the last nine years, but COVID has pulled back the curtain on this Mm. and shows us in the broadest terms is that COVID is not killing us. It's the underlying health conditions, which the majority of them are diet related, high blood pressure, heart disease. These are things, diabetes, that's what's killing us. And most of them can be corrected through diet. Message. Like really consider this because this is so important to our community. I'm curious, like, with the kids and the parents, how did you transition being able to focus on the parents? Because it seems like you were getting to the kids, but getting to the parents was going to be a more challenging thing. Um, not really. If you think about it, that's the beauty of working with elementary schools. Not only do you mm. have young children, you have young parents. Mm. So you get double bang for your buck. Mm. Kids at that age can't get to my farms by themselves. They have to be right. brought there, usually by their parents. So while the kids are doing what they do, we have workshops and, inf- for, and information sessions for parents off to the side, but not in the conventional, let me teach you. You have to do this. Uh-huh. We're there. And it's like a natural curiosity almost. We do it from you, you kill people with kindness and you kill them with consistency. Mm. I don't care what nonprofit you're running or what type of help or lesson you're trying to do. It doesn't help when someone parachutes in and airlifts out and they never see you again. Right. But when they see you every day, it becomes like, hey, man, what's up? Hey, man, what's up? What? I mean, it's just as common as you take a walk to your neighborhood store. How many people do you see along the way that you see every day? (laughs) We become one of those people. There's investment. Yes. So now you got a kid coming home with a bag of arugula, right? And the mother wants to know what to do. They call us and say Mm. what to do. Or we send the kids home with simple recipes. I mean, all of our stuff is vegetarian or vegan. Mm -hmm. It doesn't require much cooking. It's just simple. But the kids now are empowered. I can cook but I need these ingredients, right? Yeah. So now the parents are involved, even if they don't want to be. <laughs> they are involved. <laughs> what progress have you seen around affordable, healthy options in the Harlem community? Because founded the organization in 2011 and have been actively creating different spaces, but what, what progress have you seen pop up in the community? Oh, man, that's a, that's a subject that's very touchy with us because when I started Harlem Grown, it was 2011. I was shocked to find out that there were like 62,000 homeless children in New York City. Mm. Homeless children. Those two words don't belong together, right? We hear homeless right away. You have your image of homeless. A guy with five coats muttering to himself in a corner. 
homeless children, 62,000. Nine years later, there's 114,000 homeless children in New York City, Ugh. right? And they, those shelters are disproportionately placed in communities such as the one I serve. Now, I told you about the fast food restaurants in that same, that same four-block radius of that one school and that first farm. Yeah. We have over a dozen homeless shelters in a four-block radius. Those children have to go to these schools. Right. So that's one part. But also Harlem now is the Gold Coast with gentrification. They're coming in in droves and people are coming in early on nine years ago, just before all of this development and everything. So we were actively going into these stores and asking the managers to carry more healthy food options. Mm -hmm. And listen, man, they're businessmen. Let's be honest. They're businessmen. If they're going to make money, if they can sell it, they will buy it. So that's what we're doing on the ground level. We're trying to create that demand. Yeah. Because it's supply and demand. If you get 100 people coming and asking for chard, they'll carry chard. Right. But they're not going to buy it, have it sit on the shelf for two days and throw it away on the third day because it's perishable, right? Bodegas, you see how cluttered they are? Every square mm-hmm. inch has to produce money. They don't have shelf space for perishable foods, right? So that's the reality. That's the business. We're a capitalist society. That's fine. But then you come in, you have the uh, gentrification happening, then you build a Whole Foods, Our families can't afford Whole Foods. I mean, over 90% of our families are on SNAP benefits, Yeah. right? So you have a choice. Do you go to Whole Foods and get two bags of very healthy, fresh, organic produce for the month? Or do you go to the bodega and get 14 bags of crap? I could answer. You're going to get 14 bags. You're going to get 14. Yeah. It's going to last you longer. That's where it comes down. That's why all of our produce is free of charge. We don't charge for anything. We grew over 8,000 pounds of organic produce last year, and everything is free of charge with cooking lessons. I mean, absolutely so important and integral to the community. And I assume that there are people since in 2011, some of the kids have grown up now. Are some of them able to give back? Are they, how are they doing? What type of lives are they leading? that's the thing. Um, I started with elementary school and that's my mission and it's pretty specific. But kids grow up, kids leave the elementary school, but there's something here, the farm, be it the hens, be it the me or the staff, whatever, they keep coming back. And we don't shoot them away. We keep them close. And as an accident, we've sent so many kids to college. I moved one of my kids who was in third grade when I met her. Now she's a freshman at NYU. We keep our kids very close. We keep them engaged in the summer with paid internships. Mm. We hire them as counselors. I mean, we keep them close because we know the distractions in communities such as this. You can get lost easily. Mm -hmm. And we also hire from the community. We hire older at-risk youth, and we pay fair wages, health care, upward mobility, but to take that position, they have to go back to school and get their GED, have to open up bank accounts, we give them financial literacy. We have a strict criteria of what they need to do to be able to work for us to get this money, Mm -hmm. and those are our best employees, hands down. Listening to your journey, I think so much about, I feel like you were able to listen to your heart or instinct. I don't know what you want to call it, but like, how do you feel like you've exercised that muscle or grown that muscle? Are there things that you do every day that you feel like help you to listen to your heart, listen to your instinct. How do you listen to your heart? I wish it was that simple. And I'm going to be honest Mm. with you. Harlem Grown has been very selfish for me. Mm. It was for me, if you remember how it started, getting me out to do something, right? (laughs) I met these kids. That little girl who looked at me in the eye, she was in kindergarten at the time. She's now a freshman in high school. She's like my daughter. And when I was in my other life, I made a ton of money, but I missed 
everything. Mm. I miss my kids' birthdays. I miss graduations. I miss Thanksgiving and Christmas was prime time in my work. And you don't get that time back. There's a high cost of making a lot of money. And I paid that cost. So now it's almost like I got a do-over, but it's with other people's children. And you see these kids, you'll know why I do this work. You can't stop. You can't pull back because every child has the ability to be something. You have to give them the guidance. You have to give them the guardrails. And poverty, unfortunately, doesn't allow all parents to do that. Because as you see with COVID, once again, most of our parents, even the homeless parents, they are working poor. They have one or two jobs at least. And now they're deemed essential employees. They have to work, right? Who's taking care of those children? Where is that? And that's where we kind of come in. And... um, we create this. The kids, they refer to us as a farmily. Uh, I know it sounds corny, <laughs> but that's how I they see it. Farmily. I'm the papa, and some of my uh-huh. other staff is the mama, and they come in, and they got this brand recognition. If they see this shirt anywhere, they just light up, and they come running to you, and it's, it's magical. It's magical. What do you hope for in the next 10 years for Harlem Grown? Ah, that's the best question because let me tell you about this damn COVID-19. Um, it's uh-huh. a blessing and a curse. The curse, obviously, is all the fatalities and the, how it ravaged our communities. But for us, the blessing was I made a conscious decision back in March when we had to shelter in place. I shut down all operations and focused on our staff. Mm. Our staff was all at home. They got paid for six months to stay home. Yeah. But now the schools are reopened. I, I don't feel comfortable sending our team into the schools like we normally do. So we suspended everything until January, but that gives us the ability to reimagine Harlem Grown. So what I built over the last nine years and those kids that I tell you that went to college, those kids were an accident. Mm. That wasn't intentional. We are going to change that now to build that into our lens of food justice. We're adding social justice, racial justice, advocacy. Yeah and civic and a little healthcare, everything through our lens. We have the ability to do that. But to do that, you need a hard reset where if it wasn't everything shut down like this, we wouldn't have the ability because you're pulled in 99 directions every day. Right. Now we have one focus and that's to get to this new Imagine Harlem Grown where, let's be honest, every person is not going to college. (laughs) Yours truly, look at me. (laughs) But that person can be the new founder, executive director of whatever organization they deem necessary for their own community, right? We want to start nurturing and empowering the next generation of change makers in their own community. College, beautiful. If not, that's beautiful too. But we'll meet them where they are and give them the tools to be that. That's incredible. And yeah, I love what you said, because for some people, they're told and pushed like college is the answer. College is the answer between student loans, between the fickle economy, between all these things. College is not always the answer. So I'm grateful that um, your organization and you specifically are able to see that there are many options and being able to present those options um, with love and care and nurturing is is really important. Yeah. How can people support Harlem Grown um, over the next 9, 10, 20 years or right now, today? Well, the easy ask is always money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it costs us money to do this. We don't charge our schools to partner with them. We don't charge for any of the services we provide. It's all provided on the generosity of givers. The most of our money comes from individual giving. We don't write grants. Since we're here talking honestly, if you look at the nonprofit space, it's built on 
racism is yes, it built is. on institutional Absolutely. racism. Where does all the money come from? Most boards of directors, what do they look like? And they right. determine how that money is spent on the kids that I'm describing. Mm -hmm. We have to turn that on its head. You have to create fair wage jobs. You have to provide health care for everyone. And I am in that ability. I have that ability right now as the leader of this organization to change that. I can't scream equity and not give it to my, my community. Oof, that's, that's a hallelujah. <laughs> so... So yes. that's that's what we're doing right now. We upped. I mean, we know what the minimum wage is in New York. We're three dollars above that. That's awesome. Healthcare off the bat. These are all human rights. We can't scream one thing and be another. And I thank you for saying that because so many people do it, and we're in a time where it's like people are being called out. So it's wonderful and empowering to see institutions, individuals, organizations that have been doing this work, that have been saying and committed to equitable pay, really providing healthcare. These folks who've been doing this work, celebrating it and being acknowledged because historically, a lot of these nonprofit organizations have profited from not being equitable and just doing what they want because they thought they could or they're getting away with it or no one's calling them out. But to be honest, that's the system, how it's built. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you, I was part of that problem for the beginning of this. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say this has always been my view. You have to walk a fine line, right? Yeah. When COVID hit, I'm sure you got your inbox was full with statements from every nonprofit that you're affiliated uh -huh. with. And I can yes. safely say that they all started with a quote from Martin Luther King and then dove into <laughs> the ED statement. Uh -huh. I wrestled with mine for a week and a half mm. because my opening line was, before I was founder executive director of Harlem Grown, I'm a black man. Yes. I'm a father, a son, a brother. And making that line, I had to be perfect. You have to go right down the middle. Why? You don't want to alienate anyone. You don't want to lose funders. You, you have to play it safe, right? So I wrote this letter, and then I had my finger over the send button for three days because all of these things play into your head. What if, what if, what if, right? I built this beautiful thing, and I hit send anyway with no call to action on there. And um, hmm. the damnest thing happened. It was our best host ever. Tens of thousands of people read this. We are getting letters of support and money from far away as Australia, Europe. It was a waterfall of support monetarily, emotionally. And that gave me the backbone to make this stand that we are going to dig in into this moment. Because this is not a moment. Mm -hmm. This is our time. We have to do this, right? So that gave me that reinforcement that I needed. Because listen, at the end of the day, I have 27 employees who all rely on me. I'm not in a position to lose $1 of funding. I had to get more money. But at the time, you threw all of that to the wind, right? That irrelevant. This was the time to make a statement and really dig in. And that's what we did. It's one of my proudest moments in this nonprofit yeah. world is that there's so much good in the world. We get the opposite with the inundated with all the negativity all day right. on an endless cycle. Don't let that confuse you. There's tens of millions of people on the ground doing work, God's work every day with no shine, no pay. They do it for the work. Mm. And that is what you should get from this. It's not all the accolades you see. That's an accident. The TD Bank stuff and all of that. That's me digging in, not just looking for a check, looking for a partner. It takes a lot to move the needle here. Not just a check. It takes people for my kids to see an actor, a, 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 
engineer, a, a stockbroker who looks like them, yeah. who had a similar story as them. It's everything. So when you ask that question, what can people do? Get involved. It doesn't have to necessarily be Harlem Grown. It could be anything you're passionate about in your own community. That's what you should get from this. And that's what Harlem Grown is about. You don't need others to always come in here. We're always waiting for someone else to come fix something. Mm -hmm. We are the someone else. We are what we're waiting for. So just do it. Uh, uh, applause. Ooh, hallelujah. All of that. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Oh, that cracked me up. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so, so much. Uh, I'm going to end with a quote. Here's a quote that you can end this with. My quote. We plant fruits and vegetables. You can see that from my simple little logo. That's what we plant. We grow healthy children in sustainable communities. So we don't look at the tons of food that we produce. We look at the people that we grow. Right? So agriculture is usually, you know, it's farming, it's vegetation. We grow people. But through agriculture, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And the people are growing in momentous ways. And I'm excited to be a part of that revolution with you all and also to find different ways to contribute because it's it's essential. If folks want to stay connected to Harlem Grown, you all have your Instagram. You're on Twitter as well, right? Yeah, we're we're on everything. We're on all the social handles. And then more importantly, we're in the community every day. Yes, Every day. Come by and say hello. Come walk by, wave, smile. That's support. We need that. Farming is hard work. It's good to see a smile. <laughs> <laughs> and you can visit Harlem Grown in person, but also online. You can go to harlemgrown.org mm -hmm. at Harlem Grown on Instagram, Twitter, and other social media. And Tony Hillary, do you want folks to follow you or just follow the organization? Follow the organization. I'm pretty boring. Outside of Harlem Grown, there's nothing to follow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so amazed about your journey from, you know, being overweight and all that, and then vegetarian, then vegan. Right. That's, that's impressive. Yeah, man. And I'm going to check out the book. I'm going to buy the book. I have some uh, uh, cousins. I'm going to send the book to the cousins. <laughs> hey, man. New York Times was raving about it, man. We are like, it's, it's like wild. It was Amazon's Children's Book of the Month of August, man. Ugh. This thing is cranking, man. Congratulations. And it's the same thing we just talked about. There might be 20 words in the entire book. <laughs> I'm only kidding. It might be a hundred words, but it's, uh, it's the message and um, people are getting a lot out of it. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us. The 180 is produced by David Treatman with audio production and editing by Mike Luno. Original music composed by Jarrett Landon and sung by yours truly and digital portraits by Byron McRae. If you like what you heard, tell your friends. We need your help to spread the love and inspiration. Follow us on all social media at The180Pod and visit our website at www.the180pod.com. If you want to help support these stories, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. You can get access to chat more with me. You can also get exclusive content, merchandise, and you can hear episodes early. Visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com, The180Pod. Until next time, I'm your host, Eric Lockley. Take care and be blessed. Know that you'll have a blessing if you just keep on pressing. Don't stop, keep going, you can turn it around. The 180, yes, it's a big change. The 180, your life won't be the same. The 180, you can do it. Say yes to your beautiful future. The 180, yeah.